0: I was able to help organize the panel that's coming up next, um, but I was also asked to moderate this panel. And I will say, starting out, that um, I was just awed by these five individuals this morning and what they had to say, and feel very humbled. Six! Oh my gosh! I was so awed. (laughs) believe it or not math was my strong point in school so um anyway and i'm very humbled to be up here but um i get to ask a few questions ask your questions um the first one i'm going to start with i what i found so interesting was that each of these folks come at this issue in a different way maybe looking at a different system you got health systems energy food political so interesting so i'm going to ask if there was things that each of them heard in the others' presentation that resonated with them across these different systems, so I'm going to open that up, um, if I may. Something that specifically, you know, resonated with you.
1: Um, yeah, I can I can start, and I guess my short answer is yes, and I don't think I can just pick one. Um, I mean, y- you know, from the. Uh, remarks about uh, North Minneapolis having, you know, a food desert, being a food desert, um, and the access pieces there, which I think, you know, resonate across different sectors, um, but that being a fundamental um, way in which we look at how our communities are geographically located and, you know, are resourced and and are able to access fundamental essentials in everyday life. Um, you know, I think that was, that was one that really resonated with me. I think um, Lalitha's remarks about uh, asking the community how I can help. Um, that, to me, is fundamental uh, and I think reflects a, a way in which I've come to view my work. Um, you know, I, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I, you know, I didn't come to um, social or racial or environmental justice, um, you know, in, in the traditional path. I'm not sure that anyone follows a traditional path uh, in that sense. Um, but, you know, I think really coming to this the, the topic and saying how can I help with the skills that I have but the important answer at the end of the day is how I can help you, not you know what I'm what I'm doing, where I'm coming from, but what the community needs, what the people need. Um, and I think just all of Misty's remarks were just incredible. Um, I think that was so heartfelt and so true, speaking you know from personal lived experience. Uh, I mean, just that entire presentation, Misty was was incredible. Um, but just really represents the importance of at the end of the day coming back to uh, the people, the land, the planet, um, and you know the way in which all of this started, and you know really trying to make this uh, a better Earth for all of us, and coming back to the Earth from which we come from, um, and I think that was just just fantastic. So I'll pause there.
2: I didn't know he was a lawyer when I signed <laughs> up, but now that I know, <laughs> that's right. We won't hold it against him because he he seems very sincere. And...
3: uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm not really a good judge of character, but um, no, to Larry's point, I think uh, all of the uh, folks who have been on the panel have been uh, representative of a number of areas that I work in, if you've had an opportunity to read some of the things that I've worked on. And uh, specifically, um, uh, Tim, and what he's doing with solar and some of my early experiences um, trying to get solar on my roof. I was asked to provide $25,000 up front, and uh, my break-even point would have been after I was dead. So that didn't work well, so I'm looking to uh, see what I can do and work with uh, Tim on uh, the co-op. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity. And then uh, Bailey and the work she's doing and uh, her um acknowledgement of uh, white privilege and the humbleness she brings to working with the uh, Hmong community acknowledging uh, the cultural differences and the uh things that they bring to the table I think is uh, outstanding so and I've worked with the doctor before so <laughs> she told me not to call her the doctor but uh We both testified at the state. I mean, she's been uh, a representative of uh, our community in so many different ways from a health perspective. So I really respect and honor the things that she's been doing and hope she'll continue to do them. i would never worked with uh, Misty before, but if I ever want a good cry, then uh, she's uh, the woman I would be seeking out. Um, I love the the fact that the acknowledgement of the land that, that we are standing on and um, we bring that to the Apple harbor terminal we bring that to all of the um, projects that we work on but thank you
4: um i i i feel like i could pick one from what everyone said as well and i really resonated you know with what misty said um i i think a lot of us feel that grief uh hear about you know not not just uh, locally, but also we hear about the uh, recent report that came out about the extinction of species, and um, that's uh, that's a reflection, I think, because we see ourselves as part of nature, and we're, um, you know, responsible for so much of the destruction that we're. And so that that really resonated with me. Yeah, and I think also what Tim was saying about um, figuring out our goals to the hundred percent. Uh, clean energy. Um, I think, Ben, you mentioned when you have that like deadline and then you want to get there in whatever way possible. Uh, Sometimes you don't work out the full sun looks like, so thinking about that. And um, this panel is just another reflection of how we, even though we do this work like 24-7, we don't know all of the aspects of the work that's happening because I didn't know about the Veggie RX. So I'm really excited to find out more after this panel and continue that work. Uh, I, I could
3: also say so many things. Um, I think the overall tone of this for me was just so much of a focus on community and so much of a focus on the intersections. Um, and that, I, I mean, I think as I really think is true, you can't address climate without addressing so many of these other things. Um, and I particularly just wanted to appreciate something that you shared, Aletha, just about the the global aspect of this. Um, and you know, that's something that has really been a really powerful origin of my work in this is just the kind of global justice piece of it. And as much as I think day to day, we have to talk about real, like immediate lived experience of people in our communities, keeping in mind and remembering, like, you know, as there are injustices right here in the Twin Cities, that just kind of magnifies out to so much a, a greater level. And I think you, the way you highlighted it, that was amazing.
5: Um, so I went first today, which is. Ironic, because my last name is W, and so I'm almost always last. Um, But I was happy to go first, because after hearing all of you speak, I think I would have been shaking in my boots to get up on stage. I was pretty (laughs) nervous today. Um, But I think what has struck me today, after listening to all of you, is how much of a sense of community I feel here. Like, I resonate with your messages, even though we work in very different areas so much more strongly than I do when I go to an organic farming conference where I'm like, no, really, social justice is important. We we should talk about this. And it's like banging my head against the wall to 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 have that be validated. So I just want to uplift all of you for um, just the sense of connection that I feel um, and all of the messages that you had. I, f- I felt like we were all just really in sync on social justice and environmental justice just really not being separate things they're really one and the same
6: um i just wanted to say that i i feel so blessed um to share this space with uh my fellow panelists i think you all have such a wealth of knowledge uh, and good energy that i'm just thankful to be able to be here um to echo some of the things that Timothy had said, um, there was a strong um, sense of community, that desire to uplift everybody and bring everybody into the future was something that um, I noticed was commonality. Um, And I know I acknowledged some of the things that Bailey had said while I was speaking. Um, We exist and we operate within a broken system. Now that's not your fault and that's not my fault but to, to make the choice to not act, that, that is our choice. Um, and the systems that we have currently have gotten us to where we are now, so I think it's time for a change, and that, that starts within each of us every morning when we wake up. Um, I don't think it would be too controversial to say that we're all comprised of energy, and we need to use that energy it works. I sat in a committee hearing where I watched one of my sisters um, sing and pray very quietly. And it was in reference to a bill that we were for sure that that committee was going to pass. The author act- happened to be the chair of the committee. Um, and I watched my sister as she sang this song. And she held her tobacco and she was praying. And she was staring at this one senator. And he voted no. We have power medicine within us. So use it. Your neighbors are depending on you.
0: Such wisdom. Um, All right. So I'm going to start asking some of the questions that came from the audience here. So um, here's one. Uh, Isn't moving toward a plant-based diet a crucial component of climate action and a Green New Deal? And... Um, how does this issue impact people of color and low income folks?
6: Hello, <laughs> as a self-proclaimed meatitarian, <laughs> um, I, I just, so when we talk about, uh, food industry, particularly the meat sector, I think people think about the, the gas emissions, um, the greenhouse gas emissions that come from transporting these animals. Um, the carbon that is emitted through their flatulence. Um and, and that's all bad, right? But like traditionally speaking, we knew how to live in balance with the land. We took what we needed. And that included meat. And and personally it's very frustrating for me when I have my coworkers and my volunteers constantly telling me you need to go to a plant based diet. Um and then I see them eating uh guacamole. Guacamole, I mean that food has to be transported to, that's still emitting em- emissions. So when we talk about a, f- a plant-based diet, I think there needs to be more um, inclus- inclusion of local indigenous um, food that has been sustained cultures for thousands of years, because otherwise I think we're just shooting ourselves in the foot with something that sounds like a good idea, but we're sort of being disingenuous in it.
1: Um I, I just wanted to quickly um add to what Misty said. I, I think um I think you know plant-based diets are you know maybe a, a separate piece of the, the of the discussion but I think the emphasis on eating local and eating in season um is much it should be as much of the conversation as anything else and I think to Misty's point really reflects the ways in which folks actually ate for generations and generations. And so I think that's a, a huge piece of it. I one of the Things that I wanted to touch on in relation to the question of how uh you know a dietary shift would maybe disproportionately affect under resourced communities and communities of color. Um, this is in my wheelhouse, so I, I'm getting out over my skis a little bit. But um, you know, I do think that we do need to have a very real conversation about things like the fast food industry, about, you know, uh just in uh grocery retail, for example, what foods are affordable. And then I think we also have a conversation around food deserts as well um but you know i think there's there's a certain aspect of this where food choices aren't truly choices um and so i think we really need to have a real conversation more broadly about what is folks availability uh, ability to actually make those decisions in their day to day um and so there's there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had um and i think you know whether or not that's where the question was coming from Um, I just think that that's something that we need to be thinking about, where if we're advocating for dietary changes, if we're advocating for, you know, such lifestyle changes, who actually has the ability to make those changes? Who has the access to do such things? Um, And, you know, if there's such a change that, you know, reflects uh, that has an outcome that, you know, um, things that are currently more affordable skyrocket in price or things like that. Um, who's getting left behind, who's getting left out of the ability to feed their family on a daily basis. So I just think there's a a bigger conversation that needs to be had around that.
5: Um, So when I was in college studying organic agriculture, there was a little while there where I took a deep dive into um, pasture management and I thought that I wanted to be a beef cattle farmer in addition to my vegetables. So I've done a lot of thinking about animal agriculture. I have chickens at my farm. I've got 23 chickens and I eat Um, their eggs every day. And they are the best eggs ever. Um, And I could say a lot about this, but I think what I really want to say is the discussion around should we go to a plant-based diet loses sight of the fact that pasturing animals is really redemptive in a lot of ways. It's redemptive for the soil. Um, Putting animals on grass actually increases the biodiversity. It brings in more other animal life it increases the microbial diversity in the soil, it sequesters carbon um, it's good for the people who are pasturing the animals who are out in the sunshine who are connected with nature um, if we had if we looked outside when when you know when you're driving out to rural Minnesota, if you looked out your window and saw cows on grass or goats on grass or sheep, chickens, whatever it is on grass, think how different it would be from the corn and soybeans that we see. So I think it, the answer is really both. And yes, we do need to eat less meat. We got to get away from KFOs, contain animal feeding operations, and we also need to support um, grass-based animal management because these animals are—they're not going to make it on their own in the wild, and they're beautiful creatures who
4: deserve to be here too. So, yeah, it's both gonna do the doctor take on it Uh, and I feel very inadequate giving this answer uh, because there are so many you know systemic issues that I'm not even aware of but um, as it stands you know today Americans eat about 223 pounds of meat a year Um, I'm 120 ish pounds so it's like two of Um, and there are studies that show that if we keep our agricultural system the way it is and move to a vegan or a vegetarian diet then you cut your you know greenhouse gases down by like 70 to something of that magnitude uh, when you go. So from a health perspective though, on an individual level, moving to a plant-based diet has a lot of benefits, including, you know, cardiovascular disease and, you know, obesity, uh, also prevention of cancer. Uh, But I think at the same time, like you said, so many of these choices are not true choices. And so we also need to be working on a policy level uh, because, you know, we've talked, I think, in the morning about how, like, it's easier to, I I think, Catherine, you said that, uh, it's easier to buy a hamburger than it is to buy vegetables. And so that all comes in because of the way that we subsidize um, and prioritize essentially what type of food uh, we get to eat Um, and the other thing that I'm really interested in is like the cultural conversation around meat eating Uh, because whenever I talk to people who are uh, maybe not fully you know integrated into the climate uh, social justice kind of thinking they always say oh you're never going to get Americans to give up their burgers or their red meat and you know and there's this kind of Thought as if you eat vegetarian or vegan, or somehow un-American, and so the cultural uh, conversation around it is also very interesting to me. So,
3: I just briefly wanted to add, and I think this builds very much off of what Billy was saying about um, grass, grass grazing-based um, agriculture or uh, with animals. I think one of the things we really need to look at is how are we producing our meat? Um, so much of the carbon emissions, but also the other health and ecological impacts of our meat system is because we're raising them primarily on grain. Um, The way we grow grain in this country is incredibly energy-intensive and carbon-emitting, and something like 70 or 80 percent of that grain is used to feed animals. Um, And so I I think we really need to be looking at, you know, there's actually ways to produce meat that are carbon-negative, as I think you mentioned briefly in your in your talk, um, if you're if you're using those sites of sorts of grass-based ecosystems that are sequestering carbon, and also I, I've done a little bit of reading on this. And I'm not an expert, but there's also very very different health and physiological qualities of meat that is raised in a pretty natural grass-based ecosystem as opposed to being force-fed, very carbohydrate-rich um, stuff. So I think I just want to highlight that. From a climate perspective and from a health perspective i think it's a very nuanced discussion
0: yeah great discussion um you are what you eat right and um, I, I like the concept, the thing of if you have the privilege then t- to really think carefully about what you eat and, and and also to think about the people that don't have the privilege of making those choices that was fascinating. Um, so, on the food side, I want to continue. Um, there's a question for Catherine that others can weigh in on. But has extreme weather affected the community gardens?
2: Short answer would be yes. Um, I wasn't. I just wanted to throw in one thing and about uh, food and some of the challenges we've had with uh, African Americans and uh, similar to what the doctor was talking about, and that is cultural. Um, my community was slaves, and they were only allowed to eat the uh, guts and and discard of uh, animals, and that created a a culture of folks who um, were disenfranchised and separated from the actual vegetables that they were growing. So they could grow the vegetables, but they wouldn't have the opportunity to eat them other than castaways uh, of that food system. So we fast forward to today and we at Project Sweetie Pie are challenged with uh, changing behavior where well um, my family's already always used to eat pig guts or uh, we always used to have ham hocks or things like that and that's what we have culturally embedded into our food system. Uh, Changing that culture and providing them with opportunities for healthy food choices is another challenge that we face. But uh, toward the climate issue, yes, we are impacted by uh, climate change. Um, As of this year, we are moving toward a uh, regenerative approach to agriculture because we work a lot with city lots. We always test the soil to make sure they were okay. We've been using a lot of um, raised beds, but now our goal is to uh, make sure that even land within the city limits will have uh, regenerative power to grow foods. Um, We are moving toward the attitude that uh, lawns are not necessary. It's a privilege issue, and we could use that for growing food. Um, People need access to healthy food, so why not use your lawns? So we teach people to grow food in their backyard and their front yard as well. So um, we want to ensure that no matter what happens with the outside economy, that the people within North Minneapolis are able to grow their own food. So if there's an apocalypse or anything like that, you guys know where to come. <laughs> uh,
0: I'll book a ticket, thank you. Um, so to Misty and all speakers, So. Um, Misty, the mix of heartbreak, gravity, and hope in your remarks was truly inspirational. How can we best convey that combination to three groups? Our kids, to those who are tied to and benefit from the fossil fuel industry, and three, marginalized communities.
6: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, with your children, how, what, what I tell my children is that there is nothing that they can't do. That they see this world through different eyes, and they see things that mama misses. And you've you got to empower them and encourage them to use their voice. Um, I think with all the horrible news and different laws, it's really easy to get um, depressed. But when I see a young person stand up, that is so much hope to me. And that's, that's faith for humanity to me. So please encourage your children. Um, to those that benefit from the fossil fuel industry, I've been, I've been trying to master this and I don't know if uh, this is the right way. Um, but I let them know I don't hate them for their job or what they choose to do. And I let them know that I will continue to fight for clean water and clean air for them and their children and their grandchildren, no matter how much they think that we're the enemy. And I also let them know that I will be fighting for job placement and transition once this industry is dead so that they can still provide for their families. And what was the third group? marginalized communities, our time is coming. I think as we as a society are dismantling and dissecting what the world looks like around us and why it is, I think that we are coming to realize that every culture has wisdom. So I'm former military, I don't care. Um, (laughs) I had to get out of my So. When I look at the environmental justice movement, environment, whatever you want to call it, I think of us as an army. Um, And we can't all be 11 Bravos. That's the military term for infantry, right? That infantry needs people to help them when they're wounded. They need people to feed them. They need people to do their laundry. Now, none of those jobs are any higher than the other because they're all working together. And that's what we need to start doing. And we need to start realizing that what I bring to the table is not what Timothy brings or any of these other people. But that's what makes us so powerful, right? I have my whatever talents, or I don't even know what to call it expertise, I don't know, education, life experience. We all have that. And we got to pull that out of each other because the answers are inside of us. We just got to dig.
3: I just wanted to add one thing. Um, I feel like our culture, sorry, and when I say our culture, I'm particularly talking about dominant culture in the United States and maybe the global north or west more broadly, um, has not cultivated a very good relationship to dark emotion. Um, I think in various types of what I've usually called indigenous communities, and I totally hear the That may not fit, um, but communities that are living with land and living with various change and transition um, and in places where privilege is not so entrenched, um, loss and grief and chaos and fear are normal. And their emotions and psychological experiences, that um, that's a part of being alive and that's a part of being human. And, yeah, they still hurt and are still scary and are still sad, but that's not the end of the world. That's part of how we are, and that's part of how we support each other. Um, and I, I think part of this work is helping build, rebuild the cultural context for us stepping into that part of our human experience to become normal, accepted, and something we can talk about with each other again. Um, and as much as that's like also kind of scary and hard... It's also, I think, it's healing. It's, it's getting us back as a community to being able to embrace part of what it means to be alive that, um, honestly, privilege and the fossil fuel industry and all of the um, elite access that we have had for so long has allowed us to pretend doesn't exist. Um, and I, I think growing towards that and growing towards a place where we can uphold and celebrate and support each other in that full experience of a world that is hard a lot of the time um, is really important. Uh,
5: I think what I want to say is being a white person working with a marginalized group or um, an immigrant group. Sorry, I couldn't think of the word. Um, I have, like I said in my talk, done a lot of work around whiteness and what what this means to inhabit a white body and to want to help out. And the most powerful teachers that I have had are the ones that are saying, turn that finger around and point it back here and do your work, do your internal work to figure out where your biases are, where you're causing harm. And it's see- I think it's seeing other people doing that work that really opens the door for you to do your own work. So this is really a message too to my white community and to my Unitarian community, um, that's, that's what I see as a way to communicate is to just
4: do the work myself.
0: All right, um, I'm gonna, I've got some other questions here, but if any of you have any other things that have come up, please just raise your hand when I look out and we can get those, uh, can call on you as well. Um, so I'm gonna shift to the question here about agriculture. Um, The trend in American agriculture over the last several decades has been for farmers to get big or get out. The number of farms is decreasing. The size of each farm is increasing. Couple couple this with advances in automation and availability of cheap fossil fuels to harvest mass-produced crops. How can small urban farms or co-ops stay competitive?
2: Well, that's a challenge, of course, because um, there are many intersections and issues that you have to deal with. I think uh, the biggest thing they can offer is to um, stay local and sell local. I think there's a big push for people who um, want to know where their food is coming from, where it's sourced from, and uh, small farmers, co-ops can answer that question. And then we uh, look at the uh, environmental benefits of um, sourcing local. I mean, it saves from uh, an energy perspective because you don't have trucks or other modes of transportation going back and forth. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, people know where the source of of their food is coming from. You can trace it back to the source. There are health benefits, of course, to uh, eating locally as well. So I think a, a big focus would be on um, making sure you sell locally. The other would be to uh, partner with uh, other small farms, other small co-ops. Uh, they've defined small farms as being um, having a revenue of less than a hundred thousand dollars a year. I would even shrink that even lower because of uh, the way things are going and we Uh, include ourselves in uh, the small farm category, even though we're technically urban agriculture. So we're growing foods within city limits, within urban areas, um, but we are considered a small farm. We have crop insurance. We have all of those vernaculars that people talk about. Um, There's been a move away from farms, and that's partially uh, our fault. I mean, we've... um, lowered the um, value of being a farmer. If you're considered a farmer, that's kind of less that you're uneducated. You have no other choices. So we've taken that away. And a lot of parents were saying to their kids, hey, don't farm, go go to school, get away from all of this stuff. And they did. So uh, now we're left with um, uh, the lack of uh, farmers, lack of uh, the small farm, which is something that we desperately need Small farmers are uh, entrenched in their community. They're concerned about their community. They're concerned about their neighbors and and what happens in their neighborhood. And we're losing that uh, distance where these big farms and these big agricultural conglomerates are disassociated not only from the land, but also from the people within the community and what their needs are. So I see small farms as our savior I see it as a savior from the standpoint of our community, of our neighborhood, of our nation. We need to get back to our farms. I think uh, back in the 30s, there were 62 million farms. Uh, now there's 2.2 million. And even less when we're talking of black, about black farmers and other farmers of, of color. So. That's a couple of ways that that they can move forward uh, and be competitive. It's the advantages that they offer for being uh, local, locally grown, and their commitment to the community. My kids will be eating those same foods that your kids are eating. So, of course, I have a vested interest in making sure that they're grown properly.
5: Um, So to Catherine's point, I, I was at a... Um, Food Hub Financial Boot Camp last week. And um, we had a female entrepreneur who had started up her own company and took it. It it was a whey protein company. And she took it from zero sales to 2 million sales within the first six months or something crazy like that. And so she had she had a really good handle on the finances of food. And To be honest, it's pretty grim. It's really, really hard. It's getting harder and harder for farmers to make money. And one thing that she really drove home to us is that farmers have to cultivate what she called defensible uniqueness. And that's exactly what Catherine is talking about. We're local. We have a great story. Here's our story. Here are our photos. This is the only way that local farmers can compete in this marketplace because they have to get a premium over the produce coming from California um so that's one way i mean um we also just need to have policy changes like there's only so much consumers going to the co-op and buying local food can really do and it's it's the privileged consumers that can do it it's not the marginalized communities that are trying to feed their kids paycheck to paycheck and it's so it's it's an unfair system um and it's pretty discouraging so talk to your policymakers about this
0: shifting a little bit. Um, Timothy, critics of solar power claim it's too unpredictable and difficult to store for times of low sun exposure, especially um, living in a place like Minnesota where you get a little less sun in the wintertime. So how true is this? And um, how do you address it in a place like
3: Minnesota? I think the first thing to start with is that all energy sources have reliability issues. The reliability issues are different for each energy source. Um, one of the things that people don't think about very much is that, okay, you have these giant coal plants, these giant nuclear plants. They operate 995 half or 99.8% of the time, but when they fail, they fail with no warning, and they're massive so they take a massive amount of power off the grid instantaneously with no warning um there have to be power sources available on the grid to instantaneously catch up and replace that whole load solar is different um solar is variable it's not on at night it's not on at much as much when it's cloudy although it still produces um the interesting thing is, if you look at it as a regional average, you can actually predict when solar is going to be on with a very high degree of accuracy. Single panel, single rooftop, no. Because, you know, one little cloud drifts across and it's out. But if you if you were to look at it like on a region-wide, like all the solar being produced in the Twin Cities, um, you know, two days ahead, three days ahead, you have a weather forecast, you basically know when you're going to have solar production on that grid-wide level. Now, you're not gonna wanna build a grid that's just solar, but solar and wind, even just those two alone, are really powerful complementary technologies. Um, There are models, and actually in some places around the world, actual grids, that have been able to show that even without storage, like not even building in storage into it, just choreographing energy that's produced from solar and wind, especially if it's distributed, if there's a lot of solar and a lot of wind in many different locations, it's not all in one place, you can get 80, in some cases even 90% of the energy that you need from solar and wind alone, no hydroelectricity, nothing like that, and no storage. So I think the degree of concern around this reliability issue um, is really overblown, and part of it is that um, it requires an entirely different way of thinking about electricity. Y- you can no longer think of it as any one source is going to be available at any time you want it. You have to think about it: is how does a very large number of source sources balance together, and how do you manage that in real time? The technology to do that is available. It requires very different management of electric grids than we've historically done. Um, I think the other key thing that we don't think of enough in this question is... How are we matching when we use energy to when it's available? Historically, the way it's always worked is we as energy users have no information about when energy is available or when it's cheap. We just use it whenever we use it, and the power company has to figure out somehow in real time how to supply that. But given that we have this increasing availability of smart technology, we can start to build in a system where some of the, the energy usage that we have, which we don't need to do at a specific time, uh, when your air conditioner cycles on, when your refrigerator is cycling, when you do laundry. I mean, in industrial uh, situations, there's, there's a, a really vast array of things where we could determine when we use energy to match when it is av- abundantly available. And that's another piece of this two-way relationship. It's not simply, we demand energy, it must be supplied. It is also, we are living in relationship to and in balance with, when is energy available? That's the right time to use it. And that's a, that's a simultaneously technological evolution and a cultural evolution in terms of how we relate to the energy system that really gets at that heart of the reliability question.
0: Great, thanks. Um, ben or others, so revamping our energy infrastructure will create thousands, perhaps millions of well-paying jobs. Considering that the poor and other marginalized communities have suffered the worst impacts of climate change, how can we ensure that these new jobs go to the people that could most use them?
1: Yeah, I think this is a a critical question um, for a couple of different reasons, not just because the energy sector is growing and transforming so much, um, but because the jobs that are currently uh, available um, will look wildly different regardless of how the energy sector changes. Uh, energy efficiency installers, for example, um, heating and uh, cooling technicians. um, We know that in Minnesota and around the country, um, those technicians are going to be retiring um, at an alarming rate over the next few years. Um, That's an example of a sector right this minute um, that will see a huge uh, opportunity or challenge depending on how you look at it. Um, So I think my answer to the question is is multi-pronged. I think first Um, is really having good programs, organizations, and specific projects that are providing folks and especially um, under-resourced communities, communities of color, and those who have not historically had access to these jobs with the necessary skills and training to access them. Um, One program in uh, particular that comes to mind is uh, the State Department of of Corrections um, has a training program um, for recent inmates uh, around solar uh, solar job training. Um, it's actually uh, giving those inmates uh, training on how to install solar panels, how to uh, wire solar panels so that once they're um, done with their uh, prison term, and I, I think I do want to add the, add the caveat that there's overlap here with another broken system, right? I, I think uh, certainly kudos to the Department of Corrections for you know trying to provide opportunity from the situation, but I think this also sheds light on how overlapping and uh, intertwined these systems all are, right? Um, but <laughs> I digress. Uh, the point being that you know there's an opportunity there from that Department of Corrections program to train folks around solar jobs so that once they uh, are back in uh, the working world, um, they have an opportunity to you know apply to a job with a solar developer. I also want to give uh, a shout out to specific organizations and projects like Timothy's, Cooperative Energy Futures, like uh, Jemez Staples and Renewable Energy Partners right here in Minneapolis that's working not only to provide folks with specific training opportunities, but to actually develop a training center in Minneapolis that will bring the community in, that will train them for jobs, and that will then uh, spur solar development in the community in Minneapolis. Uh, organizations like that. Uh, renewable, uh, the Re- Rural Renewable Energy Alliance uh, in Greater Minnesota is also working um, towards similar projects and working with our First Nation communities um, to really help uh, spur job development and clean energy development in those communities as well. So those, I, I think, are a couple of specific specific examples, um, but it can't stop there. Um, it also takes uh, all organizations working in the energy sector, fresh energy included, to think about how we do our work, how we've done our work, where we uh, seek out folks to do our work, Um, One example I'd give here is the Capital Pathways Internship um, that was started uh, a couple of years ago um, by the uh, the Citizens League Um, that's actually working to bring uh, folks from communities, uh, young students, uh, communities from communities of color and under-resourced communities uh, into legislative internships so that they have exposure to the state legislature. Um, We've talked a lot today about how the political system uh, is a key system that, you know, you can think of as a broken system, but also as an arena in which to get engaged, to force, uh, to make change. Uh, the Capital Pathways internship is one vehicle to uh, get students uh, who are from communities of color into uh, these positions to really get exposure to that landscape, to know how policies are formed, to uh, you know actually have their voices heard in a professional setting, and then they get that that experience on their resume and can then go on to apply for a professional position. That's one example. But I think we also have to think about other internship opportunities. Uh, You know, job pipelines, as they're traditionally called, but of course, don't (laughs) love that phrasing either. Uh, And in addition to that, (laughs) no pipeline talk, I I apologize, I'll take that one back. That's on me. Um, But in addition to that, who's actually able to access, you know, all the way back to elementary school, to middle school, to high school, who's able to access a quality education to get the skills that they need to get a job in this massively uh, and quickly changing field. And so again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tying the thread all together once again, but all of these things overlap. So I think we can do our part, we need to do our part from the energy sector, but we also need to look at all of the systems at a massive scale as well.
2: Well of course I had to weigh in on that about um, Project Sweetie Pie. And uh, some of the challenges we've had is uh, with teenagers, there's a stigma associated with farming. So we get um, kids who are like, oh, I don't wanna be, we're not going back to slave days, we're not doing any farming, you know, stop. Well, um, Project Sweetie Pies managed to move away from that stigma uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, we show the connection between agriculture and technology. We use drones to determine uh, when it's time to plant, how our gardens are, are um, coming along. And uh, we show kids the intersection between technology and agriculture. So it's not just about playing in the dirt, that there are other ways you can look at it. There are hydrologists. I mean, there's so many other avenues when we're talking about the opportunities. And we open that up to um, our young people to show them it's just not a matter of uh, quote-unquote farming. Um, Ben has also led into uh, the educational system where we need to be growing farmers. Uh, We need a um, school to farm program and not just a farm to school or whatever they want to call that. Uh, We're also uh, in line with the European model. We believe that um, by the time kids are 14, it's too late. We think we should start earlier. We think that part of the time that kids are going to high school, part of that time should be in job training for whatever field they're interested in, and they should get credit for that. Uh, that should be uh, also a pipeline to college if they want to go there, or technical school or other training opportunities with um, corporate America, so to speak. So looking at the educational model, how we move forward with that with uh, the kids in um what they're calling marginalized communities is another avenue that we need to look at and we need to uh, aggressively address. Um, We work with kids where uh, no one in their household has a job. They don't know anyone who's had a regular job. So we have to not only teach them about farming, but also work ethic. You have a boss you have to listen to. You have to get to work on time. Uh, There are issues associated if you're not here when you're supposed to be here there are ramifications for not planting on time for not harvesting on time so not only teaching uh, practical skills when we're talking about farming and agriculture but also um, life skills so there are elements of that that we bring to the table and, and bring to the kids that we uh, that we work with
3: i want to just really quickly add on the renewable energy side um, i think you know what has already been mentioned around the, the training and the educational programs and making sure that that's um, focused on and available to uh, people who haven't had access is really key. I think one of the other big concerns that we've seen is that even once folks are trained, um, the connection between the training and actual long-term employment um, is missing a lot of the time. Uh, And part of that is creating the demand. So, you know, one of the things that we do and that we think um, other companies, project, you know, uh, sorry, public entities should be doing, um, is really having very aggressive requirements. You know, you need to be hiring, um, people of color women, uh, into these jobs, um, formerly incarcerated individuals, because otherwise I think a lot of times, especially in renewable energy, it, it, they're, they're white male dominated contracting organizations and, they are most familiar with and tend to hire from people and communities that they know. Um, and those are the channels by which they find people. And so there's, there's structural racism and structural patriarchy built into how the industry works and being very, very intentional about how do we force and create that demand? Um, and that's, that's one big thing, but I think then the other, the other side of it is how do we evolve and equip culture? Um, because one of the things that you can also have is, okay, you get a bunch of new people, um, people of color, for example, into a, a white led and white dominated organization. And they're always at the bottom of the totem pole and they're not really listened to or, uh, respected. I mean, and you have in some cases really overt racism or really overt sexism going on inside these organizations. And that sends a signal, this is really not a place for you. And so, how do we simultaneously create the demand to get people in those roles, but also create power and autonomy and cultural transition, so that um, you know it 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 really is a an inclusive space for everyone.
2: Yes. That one. But, uh... <laughs> uh, okay. Well, a controversial statement, and that is uh, Mother Nature or whoever is in charge has put some elements in place to thin the herd. Uh, There are uh, climate challenges. There are disease challenges. There are food challenges. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the population will be thin. The doctor talked about the um, deaths that we're having based on climate issues. Um, There are going to be others. not an advocate for that of course but we all have to die but um feeding uh the, the current population and the growing population of course is uh a challenge that we have to face but there are some natural elements okay no not natural but there are some elements in place that are coming at the population from the other side un- unfortunately um i know that doesn't answer the question that you have but Uh, I'm totally concerned about some of the um, diseases, some of the um, uh, need for people to migrate from their land based on climate change and all of those factors that will impact the lives, the very lives of the people on this planet and some of us will not make it. Sorry for the negativity.
4: Uh, I'm good at Try. Uh, so I think there's a lot of studies that are being done to look at the question that you asked, like, what does the population factor into? Um, and, you know, whenever we talk about or we try to talk about uh, sustainability and you get into this kind of um population and the demands on the planet, we get into this who's going to reproduce and where and who are we going to ask to, you know, uh, co- how do we control the population? And especially being from the field of medicine, we have a dark history. So, uh, you know, the way uh, the, some of the studies show is that, uh, remember the graph that I showed you with how much greenhouse gases the 10 fi- percent uh, of the rich countries are uh, producing? And so, Consumption is also a factor, it's not just the number of people, and so that's a huge way if we're trying to live sustainably, uh, you know, that, that is the factor that we need to look into, and as a physician, I look at it from a reproductive health angle. Uh, There are, out of the 175 million pregnancies each year, 75 million are unplanned or unwanted pregnancies, and about 200,000 women die each year because of lack of contraceptive. Um, And today, when we see what's going on in our country with um, loss of reproduction, you know, as a physician, I advocate for women and men to have access to, um, you know, contraception. And if the side effect is planet, then that's the way I look at it, but function and how to.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so um, I'm gonna shift. So uh, for Misty and then for others to comment on, but um, I'm gonna modify this question a little bit, but there's been a dramatic increase in Lately, in political engagement and activism, uh, many people are expressing uh, themselves in different ways. I mean, what are you seeing that's exciting you about activism over the past, you know,
6: few years? That it works. Um, as I mentioned in my speech earlier, we we shifted the governor considerably in the last year or since his election. Um, you look at. Sorry, um, one of the benefits of being a staff member for a volunteer-led organization is I crowdsourced some of these um, questions to my volunteers. Um, and one of them pointed out that um, one case that could be used to highlight how civil disobedience has worked um, is the case of what happened with Extinction Rebellion in London. Um, they took to the streets, they had mass protests, and and they have affected actual sustaining change um, in their country. I think um, letter writing, media appearances, working with legislators, testifying at hearings, protests, rallies, and direct action um, do make a difference, right? At least they get your neighbors or yourselves talking about and thinking about these solutions. Um, and two, it also, works to build this fellowship. I, I can't stress how not alone we are. Um, and then I, th- I think the other part of this is um, meeting new people, um, new organizations, groups, uh, community individuals um, who care um, and, and seeing their wisdom and hearing their experiences and how that enriches um, how I go about my work and how I talk to people. Um, Yeah, it's really, really cool.
4: Uh, So remember, I put 3.5% earlier in my slides. So uh, there was a study that came out recently that talked about the 3.5% rule. So they analyzed uh, all of the nonviolent protests that have happened over the course of history. Um, And what they found was you only need 3.5% of the population out on the streets doing nonviolent direct action uh, to gather that attention and to make change happen. So, uh, you know, we worry about, oh, why isn't everybody doing this? This is such an important issue. Like, we need more people. But what we need, actually, is just committed people who are going to go out there. Um, And the Extinction Rebellion actually drew from that study, and that's how they were staging so many of their mass protests. And sure enough, it resulted in change. So,
1: I I just wanted to answer this question by going back to... um, I remark that Misty made about um, how, you know, what you would traditionally think of as social justice organizations and environmental organizations are increasingly shifting toward each other. Um, and I think that's how I would answer the question and what is so exciting and motivating. And I think, you know, coming from my perspective, you know, working for um, an, an energy nonprofit, I think we're, there's still work to be done and still an exciting opportunity, um, but that, there's a whole lot of opportunity in recognizing power and privilege and how to share it and to make space for all voices to be heard. Um, and that's, it, it can sound really vague and, and kind of nebulous, and how do we really do this? But it's really looking at the ways in which you do your work, the spaces where you work, and who's not present or who's, n- who's present but not being heard. And, you know, I think I would say, you know, we at Fresh Energy are committed to examining that. We do have a long way to go. But I think, you know, with the 100% clean energy campaign, for example, um, that's an area where I think we've started down this track of making space for organizations that haven't traditionally participated in the process to show up and be heard. And I think there's, like I said, there's still more that can be done. Um, But there's so much power in sharing your power, Um, there's so much power in sharing your privilege, there's so much power in sharing access. And it really takes knowing what you have, what you've been given, what you've been privileged to have, and sharing that with those who haven't historically. And so I think there's a whole lot of opportunity on the political engagement side to really examine that and to share that with those who haven't been heard uh, so far.
3: Um, Just to build off of that, there's I think two really big shifts I've been seeing that are really exciting to me. Um, one is, and I think this builds off of what you were just talking about, the the linking together of grassroots and what are sometimes called grass tops groups. I think we're still in the very early stages of it. I don't think it's happening as effectively or as well as it needs to, but it really feels like there is a shift happening where instead of it sort of being organizations working on the ground in communities that are really pushing for things, and then the agenda that's being run by the big advocacy organizations is totally separate and disconnected, it at least feels like that conversation is starting to happen and the equity and the focus on making this the the, the high-level policy work relevant to local communities and solutions, that conversation is at least happening and the alignment is starting to happen and I'm really excited for that to continue. And the other thing that I'm really seeing that I'm really excited about is more of a willingness to dig down into the grassroots and dig down into kind of foundations. Um, Let's work at the state before federal. Let's work at the city before the state. Um, Let's work in our neighborhood before the city even. Um, and, And really the desire to build a strong foundation in a base of people that are moving power together at a scale where they can really build clear accountability from decision makers. Um, and scaling up from there. And I think the willingness to do that base building work so that we can have a different political reality um, as opposed to just trying to make some big kind of change when the political reality just isn't there. That's really exciting to me.
2: And I guess on a final note, Project Sweetie Pie really does get to be grassroots. (laughs) And what we're excited about is some of the uh, discussions that we've been having with uh, the white community and uh, white privilege, and we've had uh, comments from uh, folks in the white community who say, well, you know, um, yes, I have white privilege, but I didn't do anything. I I didn't enslave you, Uh, you know, I had nothing to do with that. I was my Uncle Bob, you know, back in the day. So um, our response to that is no, you may not have directly been involved in that, but you enjoy the benefits of that. And by enjoying those benefits without addressing the racial disparity is a rubber stamp on what your ancestors did. So no, you did not do that, but you are the recipient of white privilege. So we talk about things like tone policing, where there are certain white people, you can only talk to them as a minority with a particular tone. So um, being able to uh, address that We don't want to make you but so uncomfortable because we need to have the appropriate tone. Uh, uh, Clearly, I'm uh, not influenced by the tone policing, but um, there are many who uh, have been. So getting down to the quote nitty gritty of what's really going on, being able to have honest and uh, direct and authentic conversations about that, we're able to uh, work through those issues. And um, a lot of this country was built on white privilege. So a lot of folks deny that they have it when we can point out just in your day-to-day lives how you have white privilege. So I think having those authentic conversations and um, bringing those people to the table, uh, we need their help. The civil rights movement would not have moved forward. Uh, Women's um, voting rights would not have moved forward without our white companions, so we need your assistance as we move forward. But, as I said, we're having those conversations and I think that's very uh, exciting and uh, we're moving forward.
6: Sorry, I'll be real quick. I just wanted to share two stories of um, how I've, because I think me and my volunteers have been having this conversation a lot, um, what white privilege is, what white fragility is, um, and how saying I'm not racist isn't, isn't the answer. Um, And I just wanted to share two quick stories. Um, About a month and a half ago, there were some native students at a high school about three hours north of where we sit today. Um, They had some No Line 3 signs, love water, not oil. Um, They were targeted by some uh, European American classmates. Um, They had these signs ripped from their hands. They were threatened. Um, the school handled it poorly. I saw this taking place on Facebook. Um, and I monitored the situation for about a week and I saw th- I saw cries from the community saying, I called the principal, I called the superintendent, nobody will call me back, this issue hasn't been addressed. My child still doesn't feel safe going to school. Um, so I borrowed your privilege because I do work for a predominantly white organization. I called the superintendent of the school in question and I let him know who we were and I let him know that we have hundreds if not thousands of active volunteers that would be more than happy to come support these children. He googled our organization and within five minutes he had me on the phone. He called me right back. He apologized. He asked what needs to be done to resolve the situation and I told him and I followed up with him the next day and that's because I borrowed your privilege. Two, there's something called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force that has been at the Capitol. Representative Mary Kunish-Podin authored this bill last year. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Wind River, but that's like sort of like the Diet Pepsi watered down version of a lot of the stories that my sisters have. Um, so right, so like that got mainstream, your average people talking about this. And how did the, how did your privilege work for me? This year I asked everybody that I knew to call and write their senators and their representatives and demand that this bill um, pass through the House and the Senate as a floor vote. And we did it through the House. That wasn't just me. That wasn't just my sister's calling. That was people who look like you guys in the pews today. And we couldn't have done that without you. The same as I couldn't have got justice for those children up at that school had it not been for you. You guys have that energy and you guys have that power. Please use it in a good way there's a lot of people that are more willing to hear what you have to say than anything I would have to. So use that.
0: Well, All right. So, um, I think we're just about done. I'm going to close with a, a brief story myself. Um, I'm again, just have so enjoyed listening to all six of you. Um, and, uh, and, and the, from looking at this issue from so many different systemic ways and, and being able to imagine different systems and a change in the systems and having that courage reminds me of um, interaction I had with my daughter when she was nine and we were um, teaching her about climate change. And uh, she said to me, um, well, can we do anything about it? And I said, well, yeah, we can. And she said, well, Daddy, let's just stop it. And um, I kind of chuckled and was about to say to her, oh, it's more complex than that. Um, and then I realized it, it's not, right? Um, it, kind of two key things. One is that young people can reach us in that way and connect to the core of who we are and make us realize that we need to imagine something different. And then that in all of us, we just get, gets hidden is this ability to have the courage to imagine things differently. And I was struck by today was the courage of the six people up on the stage to imagine and start working towards different systems that we need. So I want to thank all of you.